Father, I am so grateful to gather with your family out here this morning. Um, it is beautiful to hear the gospel echo across this lot out into the streets. And I pray that this message would cause the gospel to echo in our lives and out into our neighborhoods even more. For your glory and for our joy in you, in Jesus' name, I ask for every assistance you can deploy my direction. Amen. I have had the privilege of preaching many, many weddings. I always enjoy that. It's a highlight to help seal and celebrate covenantal matrimony. And actually, in this very lot, we, uh, we married some pretty significant people in the life of Restored Church. Anybody know who that is? Yeah, Pastor Charles and Sarah were married out here. How many years ago? Seven. She was quicker on the draw than he was, but seven years. It was a beautiful day, and it was a beautiful occasion. I, I love doing weddings, but I want you to imagine you're at a wedding with me. Not Charles and Sarah's wedding, but just, just a wedding, maybe inside the building. And you know the scene. Uh, the pastor uh, is up on the platform. Just imagine me and Cleet and Charles up there. Uh, we're with the groom. Uh, he's he's kind of swaying back and forth nervously. We're all sharing some small talk just to kill the time. Um, as we await for the bride to make her majestic appearance, uh, there's kind of a slow din of conversation across the room. Everyone again waiting for the arrival of the bride. And then, bam, just like that, the music goes on, right? The doors fling open. Tears start to fall in the eyes of those who are particularly touched by occasions like that. And there, there the bride stands in all of her glory. She takes her father's arm. She begins to walk very carefully down the center of the aisle. People, somebody yells, all rise, and everybody stands up, and every eye is riveted on the beautiful bride coming to meet her groom and be joined together in marriage. Beautiful scene, right? You like weddings? But let me play this out a little bit more. As she begins to walk down the aisle to be joined to her husband, somebody in the seat says a little too loud, enough for people to hear, wow, look at her. Look at those shoes. Those shoes don't go with her dress. What a poor choice. Who made that selection? Everyone's like, whoa. And then on the other side of the aisle, somebody speaks again a little bit too loudly. Woo! I worked with that lady 18 months ago. She has put on some LB since then. She's gained some poundage. She's heavy. Look at her. And then she walks a little bit further, and somebody has the audacity to say, who does she think she is wearing a white dress? Well, we know everybody knows her background. She ought not to be wearing that white dress. She slows down, wondering what in the world is going on. And then as she gets farther towards the platform, a man in the back stands up and she says, this bride is a W-H-O-R-E, only he doesn't spell it out. And then a woman towards the front, as she nears the platform, spins about, stands up and says, you lady are a tramp. 
She freezes, petrified, terrified, drops her head, picks her head up to see if somebody will give her an encouraging look, to see if somebody will come to her defense and give her some affirmation. Instead, she's met with icy, judgmental, piercing glances right at her. And people begin continue insulting her, so she spins about, almost falls on the back of her dress, and runs out of that place. Can you imagine that scene? As far-fetched as it sounds, do you know that that has happened? It did happen. It does happen. And we've been part of that. I'm not talking about a physical wedding ceremony, though I'm sure somewhere along the way that's happened. I'm talking about a much more sacred context. Namely, when we talk about the bride of Christ before a watching world in that kind of way. You've heard the chatter before, right? Oh, I, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. And then somebody tells some story that's happened in the church, right? Before a watching world. And the crazy thing, and I, I kind of went this direction last time I did this message. I'm not this morning. So let me just say this quickly. The crazy thing is sometimes Christians actually this is so foolish, so stupid, think they're gaining credibility with the world they want to reach by joining the world and criticizing the church. And that does not work. But sometimes it's not just a, you know, an outright um, disdain for the church. Maybe what is more prevalent and what we need to be aware of even more so is not that outright disdain for the church, but that subtle downplaying of the role of the church. Kind of a laissez-faire, you know, it, it's good. I, yeah, the church is okay, but not, not valuing the church like Jesus values the church. And often that kind of downplaying of the church is, is baptized in sort of a pseudo-spirituality, you know? The misuse of a few scriptures to garb the way you downplay the church. I remember uh, one of the second church I was ever at, it was in uh, just outside of Portland, Oregon. And there was this gentleman uh, whose family was part of the church who, who refused himself to commit as a member of the church. And he said, hey, 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 listen, Mike, um, I became part of the church when I trusted Christ. I became part of the body of Christ. So I don't need to join the church. I already joined every church when I got saved. You ever heard that? Now, while it is true, there is the universal or invisible church that is the body of Christ consisting of all Christians from all times, from all places. Do you know the vast majority of references of references to the church in the New Testament is not the universal or invisible church, but the local church? a specific body of believers that have committed and covenanted together. I mean, all you got to do is read the book of Acts. You'll see that, right? All you got to do is read the Pauline epistles, the epistles particularly that are called the pastoral epistles, uh, talking about the church and church life and ecclesiology and all that. All you got to do is actually read the uh, Revelation 2 and 3, those seven letters to specific churches, right? So that, 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 was, a, that was a bad rejection of uh, 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 
of, of having a valuing of the church like Jesus does. Now, here, here's another thing that people do, the pseudo-spirituality. Sometimes people say, well, you know what? I love the church, and I go to all kinds of churches, and, and sometimes it's just me and a few friends casting a line on a pond going for some smallmouth. Because didn't Jesus say, where two or there I am in the midst? Now, <laughs> the really funny thing about that is, the very ironic thing about that is, do you know that verse from Matthew 18 where two or three are gathered, there I am in their midst, is actually in the context of church discipline. Like, if they don't listen to you, take two or three, to don't take two or three, tell it to the church, which presumes then, right, a recognized, committed group of believers. Now, y'all with me so far? Just trying to get a few things out of the way. I do get, I do get people feeling a certain kind of way about the church, given all that the church has done and can do, right? I mean, just recently, you have that thing, uh, one of the most grossly, radically hypocritical things I've read in a long time, if you've read anything about Jerry Falwell and Liberty University. I mean, my goodness. Now, I know that's not a church, but it's a Christian organization, right? And sometimes you, you, you have authoritarian leadership or abusive leadership, and, and sometimes you, do, you have um, just really bad teaching and false teaching. And let's be clear about that. Jesus feels some kind of way when people do not practice orthodoxy, right teaching from Scripture, right thinking, and orthopraxy, right living from Scripture, living out Scripture. In fact, going back to the churches of Revelation in chapter 2 and 3, he has some pretty hard things to say to those churches, and many of them are snuffed out not that long afterwards because they refuse to repent. So I get people feeling a certain kind of way. Or maybe it hasn't been like that high level, your feelings against the church that have been negative. Maybe it's just this. I've been hurt. I mean, you've experienced church hurt. Maybe something happened to you that was unfair. Maybe there was gossip about you. Maybe there was hypocrisy. Has anybody ever had that happen in any church anywhere, including this church? Right? And you say, and they're supposed to be Christians, right? That's what we say. All right. Have you ever gossiped? Have you ever been hypocritical? Have you ever been falsely judgmental? And you're supposed to be a Christian. I'm not trying to say that to say that stuff's okay. I've actually preached messages on how to deal with that kind of sin within the body. I'm just saying, right? The thrust of this message this morning is this. The thrust is simply this. I want us to focus in, to dial in on this vital, crucial, critical, this will make all the difference in your walk in Christ's truth. That we must value the church like Jesus values the church. Value the church like Jesus. The word value, Mr. Webster says, is to hold something important to hold it in high esteem, to have a high opinion of, to find value and benefit in it. We are to value the church like Jesus does. And the way we're going to look at it this morning is I really tried to simplify all the times I've thought about uh, on this. I want to simplify it into two words, two big points on valuing the church like Jesus. The first word has to do with the word, the first point has to do with the word sacrifice. You guys say sacrifice. And then that's right field, left field, you guys say send. Sacrifice and send. Thank you. 
Good. Somebody speaking up. Right. That was Mr. Haber, right? Dr. Haber. My apologies. All right. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to Ephesians 5. Pastor Cleet just read it. Number one, what does it mean to value the, value the church like Jesus values it? It means this. Jesus sacrificed himself for the church. There is no better place to go in Scripture to see just how much Jesus loves the church than Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to pick, let's pick up right in verse 25. Husbands do what? As. Okay, let's stop right there. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Here's what he's not saying. He is not saying, listen, church at Ephesus. Jesus loves the church so much. Oh, how can I illustrate how much Jesus loves? Oh, I get it. I can illustrate how much Jesus loves the church. Jesus loves the church, church of Ephesus and church at Restore, just as much as you men love your wives. That would decidedly not be very encouraging, right? Because uh, we husbands have a way of shanking it here and there and sometimes in between, right? Oh, yeah. We want to grow in love in our wives, and we should be in our walk with Christ. But the reality is we do not love our wives as we should. And we would be in a lot of trouble if Jesus loved us as much as we loved our wives, right? No, I had it backwards. He says, husbands, love your wives as much as or just like Jesus loves the church, the bride of Christ. Y'all with me? And in fact, let me be clear here, just as much as this is a great chapter on telling us about the married life and the roles we're to play and all of that, the ultimate purpose is actually saying something about the church and Christ because it says in verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So he's saying, husbands, love your wives like Christ loves the church. Next question should be, well, how did Christ love the church? Let's read on. As Christ loved the church and did what? Gave himself up for her. What's he talking about right there? Where did Jesus give himself up for her? On the cross, he gave to the what? To the max. He gave himself. It's talking about sacrifice and and, and for the six of you who heard the last version of this message, let me just give you another illustration that I used that time, okay? Imagine a husband is on a walk through these beautiful streets with his wife. It's a Saturday morning walk to enjoy the fine weather and all that. And she has some earbuds in, and they approach an intersection. He gets caught up talking to a neighbor. She keeps on walking, and as he's talking to his neighbor, he sees that there's an 18-wheeler coming hard down that boulevard. And it appears that his wife, with her earbuds in, doesn't see or hear this truck. So he yells, hey, baby, baby, baby. And finally, knowing that she is not responding, he runs out into that intersection as fast as he can, thrusts her out of the way to save her life as he is knocked out into oblivion by the grill of that Mack truck going 65 miles an hour. That man did that because he what? 
And what did he do with himself? He gave himself for her. Jesus got in the way of the Mack truck of God's holy judgment, his wrath against our sin in love for us, right? And baby, he did not do that while we were pursuing him. In fact, we were spurning him. The scripture says, Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners, while we were at enmity with God. Now, I don't know who I'm talking to here and who might be joining with us online right now, but I just want to remind you of this text that Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. That's why we sing about it all the time. You know, we just, we just sang a couple songs that were woven through with the blood stripes of the gospel. On Jesus was my sin laid. This is the good news of the gospel. And listen, you, you can do religious things. Here's a line I've used about 78,000 times in the life of a store, but probably not in the last few months, so it's fresh for me. You can be baptized until... Every tadpole in that pond knows your name, data, rank, and social security number, and you're just going to come up a, dry, a wet sinner. The only thing that can cleanse you from your sin is the blood of Jesus Christ, of recognizing I'm a sinner who has sinned against God with a high hand, but that Jesus took the hit on the cross and rose again on the third day. Y'all ever heard of John Wesley? He was in the church before he was in Christ. He actually went on um, a missionary trip to North America. He actually started some, some mission groups, but he had never actually yet collapsed at the foot of the cross. And one day he's in despair. He knows he's not, he, he just has this feeling, I'm not right with God. He goes to a meeting of a group of Moravians, a certain group of believers. They're in that service literally reading the preface of Martin Luther's um, introduction to his commentary in the book of Galatians. And as he hears that Jesus paid it all, he says it was about a quarter to nine, and he felt his, he felt his heart strangely warmed and that Jesus had taken away his sins. Yes, his sins too. You ever had that happen to you? I would have considered myself a Christian most of my life. I mean, I'm not Buddhist. I'm not Muslim. I'm American. Therefore, I'm Christian. A lot of people think like that, right? And then my wife invites me up to the service, and this guy preaches the gospel. And I said, don't ever invite me back. These people are a bunch of freaks, not my kind of people. But meanwhile, the gospel started to get into my heart that I needed Jesus. I need to trust him. And it was a couple weeks later, a week later or something, that I, like, the light bulbs went on. I said, I've, I've been in church my whole life, but I've missed this. And I trusted Christ. Because Christ so values the church, he loved her and gave himself for her. And this is one time when it's okay for a dude to be called her with all this confusion, okay? If you're in the body of Christ. Have you turned your life over to Jesus Christ? Have you repented of your sin and trusted him? He invites you to right now. He loved her and gave himself for her. He loved you and gave himself for you, sir, ma'am, whoever. Now, carrying on with the big idea. Jesus is so closely connected to her who he sacrificed himself for that when she is dissed, he takes it quite personally. 
Again, an illustration from the last message that six of you or maybe seven heard. Imagine you're a man, your husband and wife, they're at a restaurant, in a booth, say, okay? And two booths over, some other guy start catcalling your wife. Now, yeah, whoa, that's exactly right, brother. Now, if they're saying a few things to you, eh, for the sake of maintaining the peace, you might overlook it. But they coming after wifey? They coming after your rib? They coming after your, your spouse? Oh, man, that's another deal right there, right? You, you, what are you going to do about it? Something. In fact, if you did not do something about it, you would, you would question that guy's love for his wife. You'd probably question a few other things as well, right? And I'm just telling you, Jesus feels it when his wife is dissed. And I know that because Paul is persecuting a bunch of Christians, the church. He's on the road to Damascus. Jesus shows up and says, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting me? Because he's so closely connected to the church. When she is persecuted, he is too. And I can't, I, you know, I can't imagine, I can't imagine Paul's response. Like, what are you talking about? I never did anything against you. It was these crazy people who follow you. And what does Jesus say? No, it, it, me. You've been persecuting me. Knocks them to the ground, and then he saves them. When we cut on the church, who are we really cutting on? Jesus himself, right? That's who we're cutting on. So how we value the church says something about how we value Jesus, right? Right, Isaiah? Jesus himself. Paul, Paul puts it this way. He puts it positively. Chapter 5, verse 1. When he says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Can we really say we love Jesus when we don't love the bride he gave himself for? Now, most of you also know way too well that I'm a sports fan, right? No, I never heard you give a sports illustration. Would you start using some sports illustrations, Mike, please? Um, no, nobody ever said that. But I, in doing some, some research for this, I discovered, it was kind of sickening, to be honest with you, how much some sports teams are worth. Did you know that the Los Angeles Lakers are worth 3.7, not million, billion dollars? That's crazy. Real Madrid, shout out for the soccer people here. That soccer team is worth $4.24 billion. The New York Yankees, $4.5 billion, which is why I'm so glad they lost seven in a row until yesterday. But how about this? Nick Lee, where are you? This is the biggest waste of $5 billion ever. The most exp expensive sports franchise in all of pro sports are the Dallas, what are they called? Cowboys, Cowboys, right? Five billion, five, that money has not been getting them Super Bowls, but I'm a Detroit fan, so I should just shut up. I get it. And they take care of those athletes, right? I've known a few professional athletes along the way and special trainers. They stay at great places, right? Uh, they have personal chefs at times. I mean, 
really, they, they take care of them because they're such a high investment, right? I mean, it's a smart thing to do. But all of that is chump change compared to the most value organization, which actually isn't an organization. It's a living entity, the body of Christ, which 1 Peter 1 and 18 says was bought with the precious blood of Christ. The most valuable entity on the face of the earth is the church of God. Do you believe that? Do you talk about her like that? In fact, it's why pastors are told to make sure we shepherd the flock and we watch out for wolves, Acts chapter 20, because the church was purchased with the blood of God, which is, by the way, a proof text for the deity of Christ. It actually says blood of God. Why? Because Jesus is God in human flesh. Y'all with me so far? I had a lot more to say there, but I got to move on to the second one. I will say this. The church is precious not only because Jesus sacrificed himself for her, but Jesus actually puts his spirit in each of us. God lives in us. Full stop. He lives in everyone who's trusted Christ. The Holy Spirit's in you. Somebody says, well, God is everywhere all the time anyway. Of course he is. But he's, he seals his people at faith. See, in the Old Testament, the place where they worshiped God was a, was a physical temple made of physical stones. The New Testament temple is what? The church, indwelt by living stones. So the church is very, very precious to God because he sacrificed himself for her, and part of the gift of trusting that sacrifice is the gift of the indwelling spirit. The church is valuable because Jesus sacrificed himself for her, number one. And number two, the church is valuable because Jesus sends the church into the world to reach the church, the world so that a lot of the world might become part of the church. Does that make sense? It's valuable because he sends the church into the world. I was interviewed uh, last week on a podcast. They asked me about uh, church planning. It was actually a lot of fun. I usually don't like stuff like that, but that was fun. It's going to air in October. But I was asked, well, why should churches plant churches? Aren't there enough churches anyway? My answer was the Great Commission, again, which Pastor Cleet read a few minutes ago. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe how many things? All things that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Somebody says, but the word church isn't in there. Man, come on. The, church, the word church is all but in there, right? Because it talks about baptizing, right? talks about teaching people to observe all things. So it ain't just talking about the Great Commission isn't just me and you sharing the gospel on the side with somebody, which we should do that, of course, a life of evangelism. But it's not a me and Jesus thing. It's a we and Jesus thing. And Jesus sends the church, and he does so in two ways. He develops the church, and he disciples the church. Let me talk briefly about developing the church as part of sending the church. We need to be changed so that we can be change makers, right? We need to be transformed so that we can be evangelistically fruitful. There's, there's a witness in our walk, right? We need to be developed. Now, I am not one to quote Army recruiting slogans, okay, for obvious reasons as a Marine. But I want to quote one. I think it was like from the 90s. The quote goes like this. Join the Army so that you can be... You guys know it. Be all you can be. 
And the idea is you join this organization and you're going to become something, baby, that you weren't before. And that's, I think that's a good, a good recruiting slogan. Can I say you will never be all that you can be in Christ unless you invest yourself in a specific local church? I ain't talking about fringe involvement. I'm not talking about an occasional high five. I'm talking about immersing yourself in the life of church, the church which is the ground and pillar of truth. And by the way, you've seen, I'm thinking of a few people right now, actually. They were kind of on the, 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 the periphery of the church, and they were around, but they didn't really immerse themselves. And what happens? They immerse themselves in, and bam, they just take off in their growth, right? They take off in their walk because they were developed in the church. The Bible, the Bible de- describes the Christian walk in the Christian life with two really rich everyday metaphors. First of all, we are construction projects, aren't we? That's why you, we talk about, we joke about that sign, be patient with me, I'm a work in progress. But well, we are, right? Ephesians 2 talks about being built up as living stones. And frankly, sometimes we look more like construction sites than we do the showroom. But we need each other to become more showroom-like, to come to look more like Jesus. We're a construction project, and we need each other on the same project, namely our lives. Also describes the Christian the Christian church and the Christian walk as being part of a body. Bodies have all kinds of parts, as it says in 1 Corinthians 13 and 14 and 12, right? And as different body parts compose a local body, we're equipped to serve each other and reach the world. We are developed. That's the word right there. Part of being sent is first being and um, at the same time simultaneously being developed, but also being deployed. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, I will build my church, and what? Gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, you have to admit, when you hear that imagery, you almost, you, we almost read it like the church is in a defensive posture, don't we? But actually, it, 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 it's, it's, it's backwards. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, ancient city gates, all cities had gates. They were highly vulnerable to people coming in and, 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 and dominating and destroying and taking over. So you'd have these big gates. Imagine big pieces of timber, primitive bands of iron around them. You can't just push up against it. What that verse is saying is the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, against Jesus building. There's that building metaphor again, the church. And what they would do to actually attack those ancient cities, they would build these large um, um, devices where you'd have a massive piece of timber swinging back and forth, swinging back and forth, so bam, it could punch through that city gate and destroy it. Jesus is saying the church is an offensive weapon, that we are going to penetrate and pierce and break the church because he sacrificed himself for her and he does what with her? He sends her through developing and deploying. Is that plain? Now, what should our response be? One word. Commitment to the church. That should be our response. And there's no formula for it, but I can just tell you briefly in closing what it looks like at Restore. We have, we have membership commitments. The first one is that we will gather when? Weekly. Weekly. 
physically or, or virtually. Like we don't we don't have a laissez faire. Well, you know, I guess you know, of course stuff happens in life. I mean, we don't have a chart somewhere that marks your attendance and says, oh, you don't get your your nice smelling scratchy orange sticker because you weren't here last Sunday. But if we don't see it, we're gonna say, Hey, how you doing? Right? Because part of the first thing of drifting from Christ sometimes is drifting from the church, frankly. So we're going to gather weekly. Number two, we are going to um, walk in community. Walk in community. We need each other in everyday life to really grow in Christ. It just can't be a Sunday-only thing, right? And we got some exciting things coming up, and I'm actually going to talk about it in closing announcements about how we can walk together in community. But we already have a number of existing paradigms for that. Number three, we are going to serve intentionally. Serve the body gathered. A lot of people made this service happen today, but also serve the body scattered in different ways. And there's projects and various things. Number four, we're going to give sacrificially. Does, Does your bank register say Jesus is Lord or not? Number five, we are going to pray regularly. We're to pray regularly. Like this, you know, we have all these sexy tactics for reaching the world. The Bible gives you bold proclamation and expectant prayer. Number six, we're going to reconcile swiftly. That's hard sometimes because a family, family has family conflict. But if our tagline is restoring through relationship, then then we need to commit to, to pursuing that, right? And we, we've added th- once through the years as we've seen the need, and we added number seven, which is, um, don't say it, share the gospel regularly, right? You know, we're all in different places for doing that. We're going to be talking a lot about evangelism in this coming season, but we all want to be, every believer is a paid missionary. We just get our check route in different ways. And number eight, this is probably the latest edition, uh, just something I'm throwing out here right now. We want to commit to pursuing holiness or pursuing Christ-likeness, right? So that we don't look like the world, but we be just a beautiful reflection of what Christ is like to the world. And when we mess up, which we will, we repent unlike the world does. And we own it, right? And I'm telling you, a church that seeks to embrace that is incredibly attractive. And I close with John 13, 35. Jesus dropped a nugget that crystallizes everything as I've said in the context of saying he would go to the cross for his bride. He said, the world will know you're my disciples if what? If you have love for one another. We must value the church like Jesus values the church. Amen? And this is the word of the Lord. If Tanisha and Tom would come, I'll pray. And let's respond in song. Father, thank you so much for your goodness, your grace, your love. Thank you for the living witness of the body of Christ. Churches all across this world, yes, but specific churches all across this world. I thank you for the churches that we've partnered with. I thank you for this church. And I ask, God, that we would value the church like you do for our own good, for reaching the world, and then and then the kind of the peak that I left out for the sake of time, ultimately for your glory. It's ultimately not even about us. It's about your glory. 
And I thank you for that great benediction of Ephesians 3, 20 through 21, where Paul says, to him who is able to do way beyond that which we know to ask or think, according to the power at work in us, for your glory in the church, through Jesus Christ, forever and ever, amen.